Mrs Dashwood did not hear unmoved the vindication of her former favourite. She rejoiced in his being cleared from some part of his imputed guilt. She was so... I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week we're finishing up Sense and Sensibility with chapters 47 to 50. So do you have a hundred word summary? Yes, I do. The Dashwood's servant Thomas tells them that Mr Ferrers is married, which he learned because he saw Mrs Ferrers, Miss Steele as was, in Exeter and she told him. Marianne has hysterics. Eleanor is more controlled, but Mrs Dashwood can see from her face how much she suffers. Several days later, Edward unexpectedly turns up to tell them that it was not he but Robert who married Lucy. Within a few hours of his arrival, he has asked Eleanor to marry him. He and Eleanor move to the Delaford Parsonage, and two years later, Marianne and Colonel Brandon also marry. The end. Right. Oh, well, I start a fraction earlier than you do in Chapter 47. Back at Barton Cottage, Eleanor, having recounted Willoughby's story, points out its moral implications to her mother and sister. A servant reports that he has encountered Lucy Steele and been told by her that she is now married. Eleanor and Marianne are both extremely upset. They are then amazed when a week or so later, Edward arrives at Barton. He tells them Lucy is married to his brother and within a few hours proposes to Eleanor. Mrs Ferris agrees to supplement their income and they marry. Two years later, Marianne marries Colonel Brandon and Willoughby continues to regret the past. Well, you put in a lot more detail about the ending than I did. Well, not much. <laughs> but also, it's interesting, I didn't have the bit about Eleanor talking to Marianne about the moral implications, even though it's one of the things I've highlighted as something I want to talk about. All right, so. I think we both want to talk about that. So do you want to start with what you want to say? Uh, yes. So one of the things that really struck me at the opening of Chapter 47, and maybe this is partly because in this close reading we've been noticing how hard Eleanor is sometimes on Marianne in criticising her. But really, when she's going on here about the moral implications of what Willoughby has done... You know, she's sitting there in judgment on the others mm. and, you know, and she's saying things like, you consider the matter exactly as a good mind and a sound understanding must consider it. Yes. I just think we've come into here a bit of the sort of ineptitude we mm. keep hitting in this. Yeah. The bit that really struck me is, well, first of all, that Eleanor wants to make absolutely certain that they're now thinking right and she wants to make sure that they're not going to revert to their former way of thinking. But the way she phrases it, one observation may, I think, be fairly drawn from the whole of the story, that all Willoughby's difficulties have arisen from the first offence against virtue in his behaviour to Eliza Williams. That is like Mary Bennett talking about, we may observe that the loss of virtue is... I forget her exact wording. It just so reminded me of that. But the other thing that I noticed, that passage you've just read, that's Eleanor giving them the authorised version. This is what the family is to believe. Yes. Full stop. It sort of fits a bit with Eleanor's character, but not the Eleanor we've been listening to, thinking and not, so on. Not the Eleanor we like. Yeah. Well, not the Eleanor I like at any rate. It's too... <laughs> too bossy. Yeah. Well, she's, it's not just bossy, she's pontificating. Yes. The next point I had to think about was 
that remark that Jane Austen put down by this Lady Bessborough, this contemporary, that the book ended stupidly. And what I'd like to think about is what she thought was stupid about it. Mm. And to me, what I think Lady Bessborough was probably thinking about is the disappointment of Marianne not following through with her betrayed woman plot and dying or whatever, but turning round and marrying Colonel Brandon with his flannel waistcoat. (laughs) For a long time, I've always felt that that was an implausible thing that Marianne should, two years later, when Mm. she's only 20. Mm. But the more I've been thinking about it recently, I think, no, it probably could happen. We've also mentioned before, of course, how she's going to be pushed into that marriage, whether she wanted or not, by her mother and Eleanor. Well, what I've tended to think is that, after all, until this point, Marianne's never properly had a conversation with Colonel Brandon. Mm. Once she does, this is the picture I see, yeah. is that Marianne, when she starts to enthuse about something, and she's talking to Colonel Brandon directly, and he has got the nerve to respond to her. <laughs> you know, she fell in love with Willoughby because he shared her views. And if Colonel Brandon shares them in another way, she's got that. And then, of course, what you've got is when she thinks about him and his background, this point Michael made, that he is the true romantic hero. Mm. And it would be very easy for Marianne to then throw herself into that wonderful plot. Mm. And in effect, she can fit him into that right at the beginning of the book where she said, Mama, the more I know of the world, the more I am convinced that I shall never see a man whom I can truly love. I require so much. He must have all Edward's virtues and his person and manners must ornament his goodness and every possible charm. Mm. And Colonel Brandon is fitting in there, if we can conceive that he's really good looking. Well, it's just a small thing, but something I noticed in this section, which is when Edward arrives and they're expecting Colonel Brandon, it reminded me that, of course, earlier when Edward arrived, they're expecting Willoughby. And Eleanor says to Marianne, it is not Willoughby. This person is not tall enough for him and has not his air. And then later in these chapters, when they're expecting Colonel Brandon, the author tells us, but it was not Colonel Brandon, neither his air nor his height. So that tells us that Edward is shorter than the other two, but also suggests that both Colonel Brandon and Willoughby do have... They've got something dashing about them. Even though Colonel Brandon wears a flannel waistcoat, if you're at a distance and you can't (laughs) see that flannel waistcoat... They've both got a sort of a dash Mm. that Edward, in fact, doesn't have, Mm. and which really doesn't matter to Eleanor. Mm. Yes, that fits together very nicely. Mm. Yes, I think we more and more see that she could fall in love with him, Mm. though Jane Austen then spoils it by saying she didn't really fall in love with him. She just liked him. Later on, in the next page, in the complete summing up at the end, it says that Marianne could never love by halves and her whole heart became in time as much devoted to her husband as it had once been to Willoughby. So I guess the picture you get there is maybe she was still kind of on the rebound when she married him and she thought he would be safe and she had esteem and respect. But Jane Austen tells us that she did come to love him probably differently but as much as she had loved Willoughby. Since we're talking about the marriage to Colonel Brandon, I think that the situation which you've raised earlier of how you find it just appalling that she is going to have to be almost a grandparent 
to <laughs> Willoughby's child. But the interesting thing is, after Eleanor has done her pontification, we never hear about Eliza again. We have no, no. idea what happened to her. And I guess to to the period, it's not odd, but... Well, no, I suppose she didn't really tie up all her ends yeah. as tightly as she could. It's a very complicated plot. Mm. There's an awful lot of people you can talk about. Yeah. Yeah, it sort of seems that Eliza doesn't emerge as a character. So Eleanor can use her as a reference to this moral lesson, but she's not enough of a character for us to need to know what happens to her after returning to Delaford for her confinement. After that, she's just moved off the pages of history. Oh, oh no, well, I've got one more point to make. Yep. And that's something that you've been interested in, which is Margaret. Yep. And Margaret turns up twice in these chapters, and they're quite interesting. Well, the first one I'm going to talk about that when I have my favourite sentence, but that Margaret had never been obliged to go without her dinner before. And then the other one, which I think is really lovely, uh, it's showing Margaret, that, you know, all this drama is going on and she half understands it and she's sort of thinking, what should I do? How should I behave? And when Edward turns up, yep. it says, Margaret, understanding some part, but not the whole of the case thought it incumbent on her to be dignified and therefore took a seat as far from him as she could and maintained a strict silence. <laughs> I, I think that's just absolutely lovely. <laughs> now she's been caught up in all this stuff. Mm. Something I was just thinking about is Jane Austen's endings. I think all the books end not with any sort of a bang. No. It, she ties up the plot. It's in all of them. Though in some ways I think this one is almost the best in terms of having the last sentence that brings it all together, whereas some of the others just fade away into nothing. The last sentence of the book is one of the really long sentences she does in this one. Between Barton and Delaford, there was that constant communication which strong family affection would naturally dictate. Now that's, again, the kind of fading into nothing. Yeah. But then it goes on to say... And among the merits and the happiness of Eleanor and Marianne, let it not be ranked as the least considerable that those sisters, and living almost within sight of each other, they could live without disagreement between themselves or producing coolness between their husbands. So I do think that circles right back to the main characters and just shows the affection that we've felt all the way through, in spite of Marianne's performances and in spite of Eleanor's lecturing underlying that is this deep love and commitment between the two sisters but does it ignore the other really tense thing which is the sort of social positions between the two there's Marianne queening it around as lady of the manor and there's Eleanor sitting there as the parson's wife <laughs> it puts them in the relationship of Lady Catherine to Mrs Collins mm. That could have been awkward too. Mm. That there's been Eleanor telling Marianne what to do all their lives. And now there she is. She's in the same relationship as Charlotte to Lady Catherine, as Mrs Elton to Emma, mm. as Mrs Norris to Lady Bertram. Mm. And they're even sisters. Mm. And they have to be very good to take that reversal and not let it get in the way. Because it does make the point when it's talking about Marianne's marriage to Colonel Brandon. She found herself at 19 submitting to new attachments, entering on new duties, placed in a new home, a wife, the mistress of a family and the patroness of a village at yes. 19. <laughs> yes. But yes, that does put her in socially a different level from Eleanor. 
Yes, and the people that would invite them out. She and Colonel Brandon would probably be invited to dinner parties that Eleanor would never be asked to, unless, of course, the people were being very polite and so Mm. on. It definitely puts them in a different position. Mm. Let's just talk briefly first about money. Colonel Brandon, with his 2000 a year, is exactly what Marianne said was a competence. And in that conversation, Eleanor said that she views 1000 a year as wealth. Yeah. Well, what we learn is that initially there's the 200 pounds of the living yeah. and then Edward has 2000 and Eleanor has 1000 so, and that brings 50 pounds a year. So they're going to have 350 pounds a year. Then when Mrs. Ferrers gives Edward his 10,000 pounds, that gives them another 500 a year. So they're up to eight eight hundred and fifty. Yes. But then, of course, in the fullness of time, when Mrs. Dashwood dies, Eleanor will get her share of Mrs. Dashwood's seven thousand. Yes. And that will bring them up to fractionally over nine hundred and fifty a year. So they've almost made it to Eleanor's wealth. And yes. since it did also say that the parsonage is capable of improvement, they're yes. still going to be. About half of what the But Brandons don't forget, are. Colonel Brandon has this sense of obligation to all sorts of people, including Eliza and Eliza's child, and goodness knows what other calls he's going to have, old servants or ex-mistresses of his brother, or yeah. mm. all these people could be there. Mm. Whereas Edward Ferrers isn't going to have any of those people to worry about. Yes. You know, if we're talking about what their incomes are, I think that has to come into it. One of the last things I wanted to talk about was the Robert and Lucy resolution of the plot. I honestly can't remember from when I first read the book what I thought was going to happen, but I'm pretty sure I didn't expect that. No, that's very much the God from the machine, isn't it? Yeah. Again, if we're thinking about the book ending stupidly, Marianne immediately marrying Colonel Brandon could be one of the stupid things. Robert Ferris turning up and taking Lucy out of the way could be another one. Mm. Except he's such a lovely comic character who was introduced well back. Yeah. And so there was plenty of preparation for it. He's not like the man with the laundry bills in Northanger Abbey. No. (laughs) Again, we see Eleanor being super-duper critical of Lucy and encouraging Edward to think much worse of her than he did before. Which, again, is one of those not-so-nice aspects of Eleanor, but then on the flip side, she did have quite a lot to bear from Lucy over the months. Yes. Obviously, you can criticise Lucy as much as you want to for dumping Edward for Robert for money and just using her skills to entrap Robert. But basically, that's just her looking out for herself, going for the best job opening she can, and will probably be a good wife for Robert. So I think the only really nasty thing she does is set it up so that the message is going to go back to Barton Cottage, to Eleanor specifically, to make it seem like Edward has married her. But that fits in so completely, though, with the earlier part of her deciding... She's trying to torture Eleanor. Yeah. I suppose where it comes from in the first place is to a certain extent fear. Yes. That with everything she could still potentially lose Edward to Eleanor. And so she's just digging the knife into Eleanor to hide her own insecurity. Yes. And yeah, I suppose also she, while Eleanor has gone through months of putting up with Lucy, Lucy has gone through months of this fear of losing Edward. Yes. So this is like her final triumph. We've talked before about the universality of Jane Austen. Um, the bit where it talks about the getting the parsonage done up 
and waiting some time for their completion after experiencing, as usual, a thousand disappointments and delays from the unaccountable dilatoriousness of the workmen. Yes. Like, isn't that like every home renovation <laughs> ever? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now we've got to the end of the book, just reflecting on the book as a whole, while there are some wonderful, wonderful bits in it, and while I always knew it was a flawed novel and there were flaws I was aware of, a lot more flaws have come through to me on this reading, but at the same time, some bits have come through to me as even more wonderful than I remembered them. I've had exactly the same reaction. I think it was a rereading quite recently before we'd started this, but I just felt this is a flawed novel. Mm. But then in this rereading, what I've realised is the wonderful stuff that is in it in spite of the flaws. Mm. I've always thought of it as a flawed novel, but I've been thinking of it in terms of the more macro level, partly the poor presentation of, or lack of presentation of Colonel Brandon and Edward, but even more just I felt it's always been a bit hamstrung by this very schematic umbrella theme or underlying structure of sense versus sensibility. So I hadn't really noticed some of the scene-by-scene badly written elements. Yes. Since we've talked about it on and off throughout, let's just revisit for the last time the concept of sense versus sensibility. Because really, even though Eleanor is sense, what she's really epitomising and kind of the moral centre of the book, it's a phrase that Jane Austen uses, is self-command. Not letting her emotions spill out. I suppose, now what I feel about that is objecting even to the sort of sense being propriety. The thing that comes through more to me is she cares about what other people think, particularly the way she responds to Lucy. Is Eleanor, she doesn't want people to think things about her. She wants to hide her feelings. She wants to be private. There's a, a lot of that, not just thinking about let's make it a comfortable world for everybody. Mm. It's I want a world where people are not knowing too much about me. Mm-hmm. That is something that it's come through to me, that that is Eleanor's view. Mm-hmm. And again, I keep thinking she's got these two intertwining plots, which are two classic plots, and she dumps this idea of sense and sensibility on them. Mm. where in fact they're just two wonderful plots. Mm. I guess what I feel may be part of the reason behind this and may possibly also be the reason she chose Sense and Sensibility rather than Pride and Prejudice for her first book was because a lot of books at the time did have this moral lesson component and this was maybe more her overarching message of the book, the importance of self-command. Only because, and this is something you actually pointed out to me quite a long time ago, at the time Sense and Sensibility was was with the publisher in publication, a novel by the Scottish writer Mary Brunton was published called Self-Control. And Jane Austen wrote in one of her letters at the time, We have tried to get self-control but in vain. I should like to know what her estimate is but I'm always half afraid of finding a clever novel too clever and of finding my own story and my own people all forestalled. Which suggests that... It suggested to me, um, particularly the first time I read it, it leapt out at me, yes, she's really scared that they're forestalling her. Yeah, which then has the suggestion that that is what she thinks her novel is about. And 
Now, from there, you can kind of extrapolate that maybe that's why she chose to publish this one before Pride and Prejudice, because she felt this book was about something. I tried to read self-control so did i about 50 years ago yes and it was terrible yeah i couldn't get into it at all so okay so what was your favorite sentence well my favorite sentence is really i've picked on it because it picks up a little bit on the sort of the more general pleasure we get from jane austen which is about the sort of the richness of life and the thickness of life and the way people do things and This is something she wrote about Mrs. Brunton and self-control. After she got hold of it and she read it, she said, I'm looking over self-control again, and my opinion is confirmed by its being an excellently meant, elegantly written work without anything of nature or probability in it. I declare I do not know whether Laura's passage down the American River, and I think this was the Orinoco River, (laughs) is not the most natural possible everyday thing she ever does. Well, I think she picked out there is Mrs. Brunton doesn't do two things that really matter to her, which is to have nature and probability in her book and to have natural possible everyday things happening in it and so what I picked out as my favourite sentence is one that I feel opens up what's happening in that world to you and I've just picked up the sent one of the sentences that we talked about before which is how they hear about Lucy's marriage how Marianne gets in the state and Margaret is sent off to look after her And the bit that comes before it is Mrs Dashwood could think of no other question and Thomas and the tablecloth, now alike needless, were soon afterwards to miss. So what we've happened is Thomas is coming and he's bringing in the tablecloth and he's probably bringing in a tray with most of the food and he's getting ready to set it up. Tells them this story, Marianne vanishes, Margaret goes after her. So Mrs Dashwood says, oh look, take it all back. And then this sentence is... Mrs Dashwood's and Eleanor's appetites were equally lost and Margaret might think herself very well off that with so much uneasiness as both her sisters had lately experienced, so much reason as they had often had to be careless of their meals, she had never been obliged to go without her dinner before. And then we come on to another little bit which tells us what happened then. Thomas the servant is coming in It says, when the dessert and wine were arranged, Mrs Dashwood and Eleanor were left by themselves. So we get this picture of how in this supposedly modest household you have dinner is so formal. You have a tablecloth brought in and you go through all the eating the dinner. Then they have the next stage, which is taking the tablecloth away and putting the dessert and the wine on the table. Mm. And Thomas has gone through all this. And when the dessert and wine are on the table there, Eleanor and Mrs Dashwood sitting there (laughs) worrying about what happened to Lucy Steele. Mm. And what's your favourite sentence? Well, mine is one of the few short but beautifully balanced sentences in this book. Yes, well, well, that's (laughs) going to be a real contrast to me using my (laughs) sentence to pull in Mrs Brunton. It's after Eleanor and Edward have got married and it says... They had, in fact, nothing to wish for but the marriage of Colonel Brandon and Marianne 
and rather better pasturage for their cows. Yes. <laughs> I just love that balance of the big desire and then the practicality of yes. pasturage for their cows. I think yeah. it's lovely. So the character we're talking about this time is Eleanor. And previously, particularly when we were talking about Marianne, we talked about whether Eleanor or Marianne is the main heroine or whether they're equal. And I really do feel and always have felt that the main heroine of the book is Eleanor. And that's not to deny how much Marianne leaps off the page and comes alive. But I do think that it's Eleanor we're meant to connect with all the way through we get Eleanor's thoughts and feelings all the way through in a way we don't generally get Marianne's but also and this is just harking back to what we said about the umbrella plot and sense versus sensibility and self-command and particularly Mary Brunton's book self-control is that I think Eleanor is the personification of one of the things Jane Austen perhaps felt strongly enough about, which is this concept of exercising self-command. And it also explains some of the ways where Eleanor seems to almost fall out of character, like that part we were talking about earlier, where she's being so very bossy. And when I did my honours thesis at university, it was about Jane Austen's characters and the theme of self-command because Eleanor isn't the only main character who has a plot thread like this. We see it with Fanny Price in Mansfield Park and we see it with Anne Elliot in Persuasion and it's something that you actually mentioned earlier when you were talking about the two parallel plots of Sense and Sensibility which is what I chose to call the Patience on a Monument plot which is drawing from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night where the main character Viola is like Eleanor and Fanny and Anne where she's in love with someone who for whatever reason she feels she's always going to be separated from and she has this beautiful speech talking of a fictional sister who she never told her love but sat like patience on a monument smiling at grief and I feel that is what we see Eleanor doing in this book and that I think is what Jane Austen was really trying to encapsulate but Again, because of the lack of experience, perhaps, when she was writing this book, it doesn't come through as well as it does with Fanny Price, I think, is a much deeper exploration of the moral side of it. But I think Anne Elliot is really the vindication of it as a character. Well, as, as the suffering. Yeah. And what does she call it? With a green and yellow melancholy smiling at grief. Right up, actually, until these chapters. We're told Eleanor was in love with Edward but we know nothing about it. As I think I said way back at the start, we're never really shown the early stages of Eleanor and Edward falling in love. We have to take it as read that Eleanor feels deeply about Edward. And then finally, in these last chapters, it suddenly becomes clear Eleanor could sit it no longer. She almost ran out of the room, and as soon as the door was closed, burst into tears of joy, which at first she thought would never cease. Mm. And, I mean, that suddenly you can believe that she's been in love with Edward all these times. Marianne always knew it, mm. but we don't. Well, I think I accepted it all along because I was told it. Yes. But it's not until these chapters. That's the scene that it's the first time Eleanor gives way to tears. But there yeah. have been earlier bits in these chapters where it talked about Eleanor learning that Edward has got married. Yes. Makes her realise that... She had always had some hope that it wouldn't have happened. Yes. Well, I mean, that's just a lovely picture of yeah. what it's like for this to happen to someone. Mm. Yes. 
you get a sense of her suffering then, but just not as much earlier. And I think it's, again, just not as well written as some of the later books. Yes, yes. But again, I think this partly comes back to this aspect of Eleanor where she's so terrified of people knowing what she's feeling, Mm. of people pitying her, Mm. that it's more than sense. In a way, we're sort of distracted a bit the way Mrs Dashwood is, in that we don't really believe it. And then you get that rather sad point where Eleanor thinks, doesn't my mother remember that I was in love Mm. with Deadwood? And the truth is that she has done such an excellent job of concealing her feelings that she has convinced people, as Marianne said of her at the beginning, that she doesn't really feel. But on the other hand, Marianne, though, does seem to believe in her love for Edward. So Marianne, the moment she hears about Edward and Lucy, she immediately understands Mm. how devastating that must be for Eleanor. Mm. Whereas Mrs Dashwood doesn't really. Mm. Until she sees Eleanor's countenance at the time, she doesn't realise. Yes. Mm. But if Eleanor is putting up such a, I'm okay. But again, I think the fact that it never fools Marianne, that the moment Marianne hears about Lucy, she knows that it's something that's really upset Eleanor, mm. even though Eleanor doesn't show it. So she's and been... even though earlier in the book, Marianne had accused Eleanor of not having strong feelings. Yes. <laughs> but one other thing about Eleanor's self-command is there is more of a feeling today that the stiff upper lip, the extreme self-control, the not letting your emotions spill out is often viewed as unhealthy and it is healthier to talk to someone. I think what we've got, though, in particularly in this book in Jane Austen, is this all or nothing. She's not presenting a middle road. We're seeing Eleanor is doing the right thing and Marianne is doing the wrong thing. And I think probably if we were treating these as real people, we could rightly say, actually, the amount of extreme self-command Eleanor is exercising maybe isn't all that healthy. No, but I I particularly like you relating it to the idea of the stiff upper lip. I think that encapsulates what probably people would disapprove of. Yeah. Though I do tend to feel that we think today, hire yourself a therapist. Yes. Rather than go and be a burden to your mother and your your sister. (laughs) Maybe don't be like Marianne and spread your feelings around to everybody but family is there for support (laughs) yes I just think that is worth commenting on that I think the feeling we get from this book is Jane Austen has some fairly strong views on self-command is good yes and maybe today the majority view is not that extreme yeah it's not healthy to be that internalized you should actually let out your emotions a bit to some people in an appropriate context. Yes. <laughs> what I have noticed and what you've particularly drawn to my attention in this reading of the book is all those times when Eleanor is exceptionally unsympathetic towards Marianne, does dig at her more than maybe she needs to, and that section in we read today with her just holding forth on the moral yes. the moral lessons we can learn from this, all of those are Again, I think things that the mature Jane Austen wouldn't have done and are possibly left over from the early version of the book. Yes, that she didn't take out. So, yeah, as I said at the start of this, I have always felt Eleanor is the heroine of this book. She's perhaps not as successfully drawn, and I think perhaps Marianne is the character who 
was originally intended as just the opposition but leapt off the page as Jane Austen was writing her whereas Eleanor didn't emerge in quite the same way. If you're giving an explanation, I would see it the other way round, that she thought she had these two balanced characters. Marianne is like this, Eleanor's like that. But as the book went on, of course, her moral sympathy was, in a sense, with Eleanor. Eleanor's way of handling it was what she approved of. And so gradually, Eleanor comes to speak for her and she keeps patting her on the head and telling her she's done it right. And Eleanor is the mouthpiece for all the moral lessons coming through. And it's hard to be engaging when you're doing that. (laughs) Yes. No, but I tend to see it happening that way, that they were meant to be equally contrasted characters Mm. and that then the the moral plot got in the way. In the historical background part, today I thought I'd begin by picking up on something we've talked about a certain amount earlier, which is the extent to which the Dashwood girls are so particularly interested in the arts. And the other thing I think we have to realise about this time was how very, very difficult it was to get access to any high-quality music or art. In music, there was absolutely nothing recorded. If you were going to listen to music, unless you lived in one of the major towns, you were very likely to just listen to whatever talent there was available in the neighbourhood. And at least with music, if there was good music had been composed, it could be handed around and people who had some ability could try to learn to play it properly. But when you're talking about all the major paintings, there was only one way, apart from going and having a look at them hanging on the wall, Mm -hmm. that anyone could know about them, and that was by seeing engravings. Basically, this was how major artists made their money. If they had a successful painting, they sold it, but then they also got it engraved and they sold the engravings. So what was the process of getting it engraved? Somebody looked at it, drew a sort of a sketch of it, put it over a piece of metal Mm -hmm. and then drew the lines of the sketch on that piece of metal Mm -hmm. and then they ran them off. The only way you could get colour at this period was to have somebody go through with their paint box and put the right colours on Mm -hmm. and so they could vary. Mm -hmm. Some of the major books that were made were of engravings that then had been hand-tinted. So really the only access you could have to both art and music was in this very distant way. And that was why at this particular period, if you wanted to enjoy music or art, your opportunities were fairly limited. And this was partly why, because it was so useful to have people, particularly who could play the piano or could sketch things that you wanted to remember, an awful lot of women were taught the various arts and it tended to be assumed that if they were good at these things it would make them a more acceptable wife. But this then got a little bit out of hand as more and more girls felt that they had to do music and art as the major part of their educations. And it also then began to be believed that an awful lot of girls' education was sort of rubbish. And Jane Austen makes the point of this. Mrs Palmer at school had learned to make a picture in silks. 
But this particular picture of what girls' education was like was built into almost a myth from the 1860s on when you had a new sort of education for girls coming in and there was all this stuff about how accomplishments was all they were taught and they were taught badly and girls ought to have a better education. But in fact, other people have now been arguing that no, it wasn't like that, that the educations that girls got could If their parents had the right people, they could be quite good. There's a sort of fairly interesting book published in, I think, the 1990s by a woman called Marjorie Theobald, just talking about how good some of this education could be, that particularly in the music and the arts, there were a terrible lot of good artists and good musicians who supplemented their income they gave lessons to girls in schools or Mm -hmm. to girls in their own home and these were the masters Mm -hmm. and if they had plenty of money the masters could be top of the tree performers and obviously even though they spent most of their time at Norland the Dashwood girls had an opportunity to learn these skills Mm. and then the second thing was were these skills then used after they left school and they got married? Doesn't Mrs Elton say that? I was not? just going to say that. <laughs> I was just going to mention Mrs Elton in Emma saying that once she was married, she was going to give away all these accomplishments. But on the other hand, I don't think we have to accept that that was the case with all girls, not ones like the Dashwood girls who really, really enjoyed what they were doing, were trying to build up their skills Mm. all the time. But this then brings me to a parallel topic. What about the ones who were doing writing like Jane Austen? To what extent was it possible for adult women who could write? to keep on writing when they were married. And there's almost a myth around that all the good writers in the late 18th, early 19th century were spinsters. Maybe that came up because the four we know best were spinsters, Jane Austen and Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte. But apart from that, when you look back to Jane Austen's time, there were plenty of women around. We know that Jane Austen thought that the writings of women were very good when she's talking about novels in Northanger Abbey and when somebody says, oh, it's only a novel, she says, it is only Cecilia or Camilla or Belinda or, in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest diffusions of wit and humour, are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. Those three novels that she mentioned were all written by women. Belinda was written by a spinster, Maria Edgeworth, who wrote an awful lot of stuff. But on the other hand, Cecilia and Camilla were both written by Fanny Burney. She wasn't married at the time she wrote Cecilia, but she was married by the time she wrote Camilla. And when you start looking through the women of that period, well, there were dozens of them. And many of them were very well regarded in their day. They just haven't lasted in the same way Jane Austen and the Brontes have. Yes. But anyway, I was having a little bit of a look at it. What women were writing at this period and various married women I found. There was Anna Barbold, who was born in 1743. She was more a children's book writer. There was Fanny Burney, who was born in 1752. There was Martha Sherwood, who was Mrs Sherwood, who was born in 
same year as Jane Austen, 1775. She wrote a lot, but she wrote a novel called Susan Gray, but she also wrote The Fairchild Family, which was terribly popular. And then, of course, there was the Mary Brunton we've been talking about today, who was very well known. She was born in 1778. She was married. She was Mrs Brunton. And then looking at the people that were born about the time Jane Austen was writing... There was Mrs Gatty, who was certainly married, had eight children, wrote and wrote and wrote and edited a children's magazine called Aunt Judy's Magazine. And, of course, Mrs Gaskell, who was born in 1810. She was married and wrote as a married woman. And really, if you're going to include married women, you might as well put George Eliot in there because she certainly didn't start writing until she'd sort of started living with George Henry Lewis. But there are certainly single women from that period. There's also Hannah Moore, who wrote the very famous Caleb's In Search of a Wife. She was older than Jane Austen. And Maria Edgeworth, who wrote Belinda. But I just thought I'd look through the Chapman edition of the letters. And there I found this fascinating bit, which is someone called Mrs Cook, probably married to a local clergyman or a local property owner, And in 1798, she must have written to Jane Austen because Jane Austen wrote, Your letter was chaperoned here by one from Mrs Cook, in which she says that Battle Ridge is not to come out before January, and she is so little satisfied with Cawthorne's dilatoriness, Cawthorne being the publisher, that she never means to employ him again which interestingly means this is Jane Austen when she's 23. She's in close contact with a married woman who is writing novels and getting them published. And And dealing professionally with the publisher herself. Yes. Or at any rate, even if she's not personally dealing with the publisher, she is making decisions about the publisher, even if her husband is the one having the actual dealings. Yeah, and she's probably leaning over his shoulder saying, tell him this, tell him this. So what it does seem then is that there were probably lots of women who did continue with writing, like we assume Eleanor continues with her painting and Marianne certainly continues with her music, So who wrote as a hobby, but there were also clearly quite a number who, presumably with the encouragement of their husband, published. Possibly that was just an extension of the hobby. Possibly it was genuinely seen as a way to bring extra income. Possibly it was fulfilment of artistic yes in terms of wanting to get money Jane Austen's niece Anna Lafroy she married and she had several daughters and they were just this publishing team admittedly what they were publishing was these funny little booklets for sort of working class children to read a social conscience behind it. I think the implication though is that they wanted the money (laughs) (laughs) and so you know this is why Now, I get sort of fairly irritated when you get people assuming that it was because Jane Austen was a spinster that she wrote this. I really do like the Claire Tomlin book, but uh, she's talking about after what she calls the Big Wither fiasco when she accepted his proposal and then the next day changed her mind. Yes, and she says something about, well, of course, you know, if it had been accepted, she might have gone on and had his baby, and while that would have been nice, it's not like having Mansfield Park and Emma, which just seems to me just not true. The thing is, 
We just don't know. She might have died in childbirth and we would never have had Mansfield Park, but equally she might have continued to write with the support of her husband. And I'm not sure what the current view of what she died of was, but it's possible that if she'd been married and in a different place at a different time, she might have lived longer and we might have got more books. We don't know enough about Harris Bigwither to know whether he would have been supportive or not. He would have been supportive. Uh, Just knowing what the Bigwither women... They married into a family that was terribly supportive of Charlotte Young, who's a generation later. It was a sort of a cultivated family. The thing that allowed her to start writing again was getting away from Bath and getting a settled home. She kept all these manuscripts from way back, and when she finally had somewhere she could settle down... Whereas if she'd been married to Harris Big Wither, she would probably have had a lovely little boudoir and had her yeah. own whole writing room. Yeah. Of course, the other thing is to what extent financial desire prompted her to push for publication. It seems to me extraordinarily unliking that, that she didn't want them published. She liked the books of other women. Her family kept pushing her to get published. But yeah, as I said, we don't know. Her life would have been different. Maybe she would have, in fact, married and stopped writing. But maybe she wouldn't. In terms of the pop culture versions, the TV and film adaptations all have the servant revealing that Mr. Ferrers is married, and then they all have Edward's unexpected visit. They deal with it fairly consistently, but after that it does differ slightly, particularly in terms of Eleanor's response after Edward reveals that he's not married. Because as we know, in the book, Eleanor runs out of the room and then for the first time in the entire book, she completely breaks down. Yes. In the 1971 version with Joanna David and Kieran Madden, I think that might be one where she actually breaks down in the room or she's certainly upset and then Mrs Dashwood says, I'm sure you and Edward would be happier in the garden. Yeah, so you don't have that break that Jane Austen has between her realisation that things could be coming right and them coming right. So then with the 1981 version, Eleanor runs out into the garden and Marianne tells Edward to go after her. Oh, that sounds Which again, right. Because at that stage, Edward thinks that he's got no chance with her and he's actually about to leave completely. Oh, right. And Marianne tells him to go after Eleanor. The... 1995, it actually turns it around completely. Eleanor literally breaks down in the room while she's sitting there and Mrs Dashwood, Marianne and Margaret leave the room so that Eleanor and Edward are together. So poor Edward is left with having to comfort her as well as... Well, basically what you have is Edward standing there telling his story while she's crying. But the one thing I do like about that is when she finishes crying and I think he actually proposes at the end and she looks up and she's got this blissful look on her face. That's really nice. But the breaking down in front of everyone doesn't sit well for me. Well, it doesn't fit with everything we've seen of Eleanor so far. No. No. I mean, what they wanted was to show her finally breaking down and I, I get that. I just wish it hadn't been in the room with everyone else. I wish she'd done what she'd done in the book and left the room. Yes. Which is what they did do in the 2008 version with Hattie Morahan playing Eleanor. I don't think she actually breaks down into tears, but she leaves the room, she goes into the kitchen, she puts her apron on, she starts doing stuff, and Edward follows her and talks to her. And that, I thought, did actually work quite well. Yes. Where it went off track, whereas I thought the 1995 version stayed on track, is that it 
gave a full proposal from Edward, which Jane Austen doesn't give us in the book. By contrast, in 1995, after Edward's finished telling his story and you've had Eleanor looking up and she's not crying anymore, then it cuts to outside where Mrs Dashwood and Margaret and Marianne are there (laughs) wondering what's happening. And then Marianne whispers to Margaret and she goes up the steps into her treehouse so she can see into the room. (laughs) And, And she says, they're talking, he's kneeling down. So they get around the not having to write the proposal scene. By contrast, the... Colonel Brandon and Marianne, Mm. of course, not in the book at all. But the 1971 BBC version, while Eleanor and Edward are outside, because they've been told, I'm sure you and Eleanor will be happier in the garden, (laughs) that's when Colonel Brandon arrives. And so while Edward is proposing out in the garden, Colonel Brandon is proposing to Marianne in the house. So it's all happened at the one time. Yeah. Interestingly, in the 2008 version, Marianne tells Eleanor that Colonel Brandon has asked her to marry him, and this happens even before Edward has turned up, which is, again, a little odd. And a bit premature from Colonel Brandon, really. All of the film and TV versions really work very hard to show Marianne getting closer to Colonel Brandon in the immediate aftermath of her Yes. So it wasn't completely jarring because it had been set up, but it still felt odd to have it before Edward and Eleanor. I noticed when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice that almost every film and television adaptation gave the last lines to Mrs Bennet. But in these, the dialogue just kind of disappears into nothing and what it finishes on is strong visuals. All right. So with 1971... Both proposals have happened and everyone's congratulating each other and I think the two sisters hug each other and it finishes up on them. Yes. And in 1981, I didn't write down exactly how it finishes, but again, the dialogue just kind of disappears into nothing. But the two with, I think, strongest visual finishes, but with completely different approaches to it, are the 1995 Emma Thompson script. After the Edward and Eleanor scene, it then cuts to... Colonel Brandon and Marianne's wedding. They're coming out of the church, there's music playing, all the village children are around. Then it cuts, because this is the adaptation where she completely cut out Willoughby coming to see them when he thought Marianne was dying. All right. The fact that Willoughby did actually love her was pushed earlier in the movie. Colonel Brandon told them that. But this scene of the wedding, then it cuts to Willoughby on a horse at the top of a hill overlooking it, and then he turns around and rides away. And then it cuts back to the wedding and they get in the carriage to go away and Colonel Brandon reaches into a pouch and throws up a handful of sixpences into the air. And it was kind of cute because it also has a lot of the other cast members there, including Fanny and John Dashwood. And you see Fanny basically pointing to a sixpence and telling John (laughs) to pick it up, which was very Fanny. Yes. The very final shot is he's flung another handful of sixpences up into the air And what it focuses on is the sixpences in the air. And what they said in the commentary is that the thing they liked about this scene is it brings together the big themes of the book, which are basically love and money. Yes. So that was how that one ended, which I thought was quite powerful. The 2008 version took a completely different approach to the ending. It still had the Marianne and Colonel Brandon marriage, but not the wedding. It had them arriving at Delaford getting out of the carriage, shot of impressive-looking Delaford and Colonel Brandon picking up Marianne. 
Yeah. And then it cuts to Edward and Eleanor in the garden of the parsonage and there are hens and Edward is chasing the hens around, <laughs> which I don't know what they were intending or not, but certainly brings home the difference in social station of yes. the two sisters. Yeah. But the very last shot of that one, I thought it was lovely. It was a shot just of Eleanor's face looking happy. Yes. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to end. So I just thought I might briefly recap on some of the things I like best about the different adaptations. I thought in all four of those productions, the Eleanor actress was really good. Sometimes the script had maybe showing a bit more emotion at places I felt weren't appropriate, but in general I thought the Eleanor actresses always did this wonderful job of hurting but keeping a good surface. Yes. The Marianne actresses, on the other hand, I thought Kate Winslet was just head and shoulders above all of the others. Colonel Brandon, the closest to the book I would say was the actor who played him in 2008 who was David Morrissey but I also really really love Alan Rickman's performance in 1995. It was much more romantic than I think Colonel Brandon in the book is meant to be but it was a beautiful performance but David Morrissey I think is closer to the Colonel Brandon of the book. Yes. In terms of Edward, given what we were saying earlier about him being shorter and having less air than the others, <laughs> yeah. um, probably the 1971 and 1981 Edwards, who were much more insignificant looking, <laughs> are maybe closer to the book. I do know that when the 1995 production, it was announced Hugh Grant was going to play the part. Yeah. They got letters of complaint from the Jane Austen Society saying he was far too good looking. All right. Which he was. I still think... He it was not the Edward that Jane Austen had written, but it did give him a lot more that you could feel Eleanor could be in love with him. Yes. I mean, I imagine what Hugh Grant would bring to it was the diffidence. Yes. I felt that Dan Stevens in 2008, they were basically just saying, let's do what was done in 1995. The Willoughby is interesting because I actually think the Willoughby in 1981, he was actually really, really charming in the early scenes. He also seemed quite young mm. and he gave quite a good emotional presentation in the scene where he came in the middle of the night. So I thought he was actually one of the standout performances in mm. that production. Whereas Greg Wise, who played Willoughby in 1995, he was charming, but he didn't seem to capture the youth that maybe I didn't pick up on in the book, but I thought worked really well in that earlier production. And in 2008, where Willoughby was played by Dominic Cooper, he did capture the youth of Willoughby. I didn't like his performance as much, and I found it less engaging that when he came in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. a lot of it was self-justification. But then after all, that's what it was in the book, a lot of yes. self-justification. But if I had to pick a favourite Willoughby, I would almost be inclined to say it was Peter Woodward from 1981. Now, just looking at how some of the modernisations treat this final section, mm. the Bollywood version does some very different things from the book. Yeah. The first one is that the Colonel Brandon equivalent, Major Bala, he has actually found a young officer <laughs> and he brings this man as a suitor for Minakshi, the Marianne character. Oh, right. So what that leads to is that Minakshi then has to tell Major Bala, I am in love with you. So oh. <laughs> she actually drives convincing him to propose to her. Yes. And then the other thing that is different is that 
the Edward character, he's an aspiring film director. He's gone off to direct a film and the publicity around the film, there's been stuff about him and the leading actress of the film getting together. <clears throat> and he hasn't been speaking to Sumya, who is the Eleanor equivalent, because part of her plot was she considered herself as unlucky. So she was actually trying to pull right away from him so that she wouldn't pass her unluck onto him. And when she hears through the newspaper that he is involved with this actress, she takes a job offer to move to the American branch of the company. And she is actually packed and ready to go when the Edward equivalent, who's called Srikanth, turns up at the door. It doesn't sound much like Sense and Sensibility. It actually is, in many ways, very close to Sense and Sensibility, more than many of the other updates. But because it's a Bollywood production, there's a lot more cultural references, a lot more Bollywood traditions that I'm just mm. not familiar with. And that one finished with what is definitely a double wedding. From Prada to Nada, the 2011 film, it basically just has the two couples get together Mary, the Marianne character, realises that Bruno, the Brandon character, has in fact been in love with her for a long time. And in the meantime, Edward has bought the house opposite for himself and Nora. And that one finishes with family and friends celebrating at Nora and Edward's wedding. Yes. Sense and Sensibility. It also has a wedding as the last scene. I can't actually remember whose it is, but I think that one might be... Marianne's wedding not Eleanor's wedding yes so all of those modernizations do finish with a big wedding scene one way or another yes the book version written by Joanna Trollope where it finishes is there's a big party happening at Delaford and everyone's invited including Robert and Lucy in that one Robert Ferrers is gay and has married Lucy in part to allow his mother to remain in denial about the fact that he's gay yes and he and Lucy turn up in matching outfits, absolutely determined to be centre of attention, yes. which reconciles Mrs. Ferrers to them. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Just after we finished the last episode, I listened to the First Impressions podcast who had done an episode themselves looking at the 2008 miniseries of Sense and Sensibility, and they picked up on some subtext that just hadn't even occurred to me. It's to do with the bit I talked about where after Marianne is in Colonel Brandon's library, it cuts to Colonel Brandon outside with a hawk or with a falcon. And I interpreted that as showing him having both the library and the pianoforte that appeals to Marianne's interests, but also being engaged in more masculine outdoor pursuits. For me, having a hawk sounds a bit odd because I don't think it comes up anywhere in Jane Austen. No, I'm sure it doesn't. It feels too Elizabethan mm. rather than Regency. Okay. <laughs> but what they commented on in the First Impressions podcast was they felt that there'd been a couple of references earlier to the idea of taming Marianne. References in the, the film yes. rather than in the book. Yeah. You see the hawk or falcon, whichever it is, flying off and then coming back to his hand and then you see Marianne watching. So you could see this as the subtext being this is about him taming Marianne as he has tamed his hawk. Yes. Which is an interesting perspective on it that quite literally had not occurred to me at all. And I really don't think there's all that much justification in the text. Not in the original book, absolutely not. No. Yeah, I think if that is an intended subtext, I find it kind of distasteful. 
Yes. And unfortunately, having had it pointed out now, I don't think I can ever look at that scene quite the same again. All right, yes. (laughs) You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. Now that we've finished Sense and Sensibility, we're going to be taking a bit of a break. But after that, we'll be back with what is probably Jane Austen's most controversial novel, Mansfield Park. But also probably one of her most interesting. Absolutely. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.